And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. For my money, there's no more talented, thoughtful, or interesting journalist in the country than Tim Alberta of The Atlantic. And his new book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism, reflects why. It's an extraordinary look inside the politicization and the capture of the evangelical church by Christian nationalists and craven politicians over decades. But the book is more. It's also a moving memoir because Tim's late father was an evangelical pastor. Tim grew up in the church and experienced that shift even in his own church community. It's really a fascinating work. I sat down and talked with him about it the other day. And here's that conversation. Tim Alberta, my friend, I've been so eager to chat with you. It's great to see you. Great to see you, Axe. Been too long. Yeah, yeah. Well, the occasion for us chatting are, are, are a couple of things. One is you have a new book coming out, The Kingdom, The Power and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. This book is interesting because this is not some dispassionate journalistic enterprise on your part, although you bring all of those wonderful skills you have to it. But this is a story that you're sort of integrally a part of because you grew up in the evangelical church. And not only that, your dad was the pastor. I know people who heard this podcast before with you know this story, but talk a little bit about that and your how your dad came to that place and what it meant for your family in Michigan. My dad was uh, was a character in a lot of ways, and he was an amazing guy in in every way. And he was one of these people who I'm not just saying this because I'm his son. He could have done anything that he wanted to do. He was just he was a brilliant guy. Um, and when he was in his you know mid to late twenties, he was a hotshot young finance guy in New York and uh, making a lot of money and driving a Cadillac and. My mom was working for ABC Radio in New York and um, was uh, was on the fast track there to be a to be a journalist, and they were doing great. and um, And my dad just started to feel this sort of rumbling emptiness inside of him that he couldn't explain, and um, he kind of went looking for purpose and didn't find anything, and was just miserable. He had this beautiful wife and this newborn son, my oldest brother Chris, and everything on paper would seem to be fine, but he was just miserable and, and felt, um, almost despairing. And then one day, despite being an atheist, uh, and coming from a totally unbelieving family, he wandered into this church up in the Hudson Valley and he heard the gospel for the first time and he gave his life to Jesus. And, and that was dramatic enough acts because it, he really like overnight it just transformed him i mean his brothers his his wife my mom was not yet a christian at the time all these people who knew him best he just became unrecognizable i mean he was waking up at 4 in the morning and sitting in silence for hours praying and reading the bible and they're all like who is this guy what has happened to him and then even more dramatically a short time after that he feels that the lord is calling him to enter ministry to go to seminary and now they really think he's nuts. I mean, everybody, like, you know, his parents, his his friends, uh, everybody. And my dad is, uh, you know, he's praying and he just feels the Lord anointing him saying, "You, this is the purpose for your life. And so he gives up his hot shot finance job and he and my mom basically almost get cut off from their families for a time and they sell all their belongings and they go for the next couple of decades, like living on food stamps and working at little churches all R over the Remind place. me where you were in life at that time. Were you- I wasn't even, I wasn't even you born You were a yet. twinkle yeah. in your father's eye. I was a twinkle in the eye. Yeah. Yes. And it, well, one of the great full circle kind of serendipitous things about his story is that this church- in the Hudson Valley, where he was saved, Goodwill uh, Church as the name of it, my dad wound up going to seminary, and then his first job out of seminary was working there as an associate pastor at Goodwill Church, and that's actually where I was born, and that's where my nursery was as a baby, was inside the church library. <laughs> so huh. uh, it's that's kind of my family's story. And and then and you grew up in in the church that he pastored in. Uh... In Michigan, Richard Alberta, we should say, and honor him yeah. by his, his full name. And talk about that experience growing up in the church and what 
what you understood it to be, what it meant to you? We moved when I was pretty young, uh, I think about four years old, moved to, to Michigan. And um, my dad took over basically this startup church called Cornerstone. And uh, he pastored that church uh, for the next uh, quarter century. And it was really my home uh, in every way. My mom was on the staff there as well at the church. And I was the youngest of the four kids in the family. And so I like physically, literally grew up in the church. I, every you know spare moment, I was there and doing my homework and bringing dates there. I even worked there as a janitor when I went to community college. Uh, it was, that, that was my home. And these were my people. And, you know, it's interesting, Axe, like there's, I think every pastor's kid, if they're being honest, uh, goes through a little bit of a rebellious phase. And I, I, I certainly did. It didn't really ever affect my faith. I've always, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. I've, I've always, at a sort of a deep, cerebral, intellectual level, understood the gospel and had a relationship with Jesus that way and believed in, in, in Christ. But I certainly began to be skeptical of the church, of the institution of Christianity, American Christianity specifically. Um, and I say that because when I was younger, this is a story I haven't told before, but I, I went on mission trips to different places um, and uh, worked in abject poverty in other countries to, to build hospitals and schools and uh, homes, things like that. And there was just always something very jarring to me in doing that, in in sort of juxtaposing the absolute contentment and tranquility and faith and happiness of people who were living with nothing, but they had Jesus. And yeah. the Americans, the Americans who would come to help them, who were I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of wonderful people in my church who I grew up around. Um, but but there was there were attitudes and 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 ideologies and behaviors that just seemed off to me, particularly in that contrast. And so I just became disillusioned a little bit with with, with organized Christianity. Yeah, that would, as you point out in your book, that would not not separate you from mostly young, many young people today, uh, yes. who are deeply who are deeply skeptical of the institutions of the church. So this book begins on the day that your dad passes and you return home to give the eulogy at his church and you gave a really a, a challenging eulogy uh and talked about uh and i believe this was part of it i correct me if i'm wrong but whether they wanted to be the church of jerry falwell or the church of russell moore Russell being a, a friend of mine who was a, a fellow at the Institute of Politics who split with the Southern Baptist Conference over the cover-up of sexual misconduct by pastors in the church. But talk to me about what you meant, because it's sort of fundamental to what this whole book is about. It was a painful thing, because obviously, you know, you lose your, your dad um, very suddenly, and that's painful enough. And you're kind of reeling from that. And and so then I go home for, you know, the funeral and everything. And um, it just so happened that my dad died right after my first book had come out. And, and that book was, you know, obviously pretty critical of Donald Trump and contained a lot of unflattering revelations about Donald Trump. So I was sort of in the crosshairs of right-wing media at that moment, and including Rush Limbaugh. And so I come home to see my family and do the funeral and all of that. And the day before the funeral, when we're at his visitation, I have people coming up to me, like kind of getting in my face and, and confronting me and wanting to argue about politics, wanting to argue about Trump, you know, bringing up Rush Limbaugh. Like I had people asking me if I was still a Christian and you're sort of in this fog of melancholy and you're almost one, like, is this real? Is this actually happening? And it was real. And so, yeah, the next day I delivered the eulogy and I kind of let people have it a little bit and said like, hey, what are we doing here? Like, what you know, it, like, and again, I want to be really clear, Axe, this is like a, a, it's not just a minority of people, it's a small minority of people. But as we've seen in politics, a small fringe minority can 
very quickly exert itself and, and sort of crowd out the the quiet mainstream. And that's kind of what's happening in the church at large, and it was what was happening in my church that I grew up in. And so I did challenge people in the eulogy and said, basically, you know, talked about spiritual formation and talked about discipleship and like, look, if we're serious believers, why are we listening to Rush Limbaugh in our car? Like, my dad's got a lot of sermons uploaded on YouTube that you could go find, and I'm pretty sure you could just open your Bible app and, you know, listen to scripture while you're driving. You really don't need to listen to Rush Limbaugh. And uh, it got worse there because uh, a little while later, we buried my dad uh, after the funeral. And then I was given a note from someone at the church who had heard the eulogy. And the note basically, this was from somebody who I knew very well, who was a friend of my dad's, who was an elder at the church for a long time. He'd known me since I was a kid. And he basically just let me have it and said that I was a part of the deep state and that I was undermining God's ordained leader of this country, Donald Trump, and that I should be ashamed of myself. And, um, you know, it's t- it's tough to put into words just what that did to me. Um, I don't want to be dramatic about it. It's just like it kind of tripped a wire, I think, in, in a lot of ways, because this thing, David, that had been kind of abstractly a problem that I knew was out there and that I was worried about, suddenly it was very concrete and almost very threatening to me, and, and I just felt compelled to, to, to do something about it. Well, what this speaks to is what you ultimately uh, lead to, because this is a history, and I want to get into a little bit of that history. Um, but at the end of it, what's clear is that it's, ni- it's, it's neither the Church of Falwell nor Russell Moore now, the evangelical movement. In many ways, it is the Church of Trump, and uh, that that is a, a kind of stunning. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about him, but just a little bit of the history, because this wasn't something that happened eight years ago. It's not something that happened 10 years ago. This has been something that has been gradually happening over 40 years, uh, or a little more than, a little more than 40 years. Uh, and it began with something called the moral majority, which I re- remember well. Talk about the sort of beginnings of uh, this transformation of the evangelical movement. You're right, obviously, that there's a much longer arc here. And so what I do after I kind of introduce the book uh, in the context of my family and my dad and and his story um, is I go back in time. I jump back 50 years to talk about the seeds being planted here, so to speak. And and, um, what you're really dealing with is in the mid-1970s, you've got the beginnings of as as you know fundamentalist christians as evangelical christians at that time viewed it as kind of the beginning of the threat to christian america the idyllic yeah. christian america as they knew it right the, the 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 christian america uh where suddenly you know abortion is legalized where pornography is prevalent where the drug culture is is kind of uh, out of control and prayer is banned in public schools and and suddenly you know, like christians are starting to feel like the barbarians are at the gates right um and falwell senior had he was a brilliant businessman first and foremost people have to understand that that this guy you know he he could uh he could have sold anybody on anything. So, so Jerry Falwell Sr., he's got this big, growing megachurch in Lynchburg, Virginia, and he has tapped into this medium of television, and suddenly he's broadcasting all across the country, and he's raising a ton of money, raising a ton of money and building this huge following. But he realizes, David, that the church isn't enough, Falwell Sr. He knows that if he's going to win the fight for America— then he needs something adjacent to the church. He needs like a cultural stronghold. So he builds out two things. First, he builds out this small Baptist college, Lynchburg Baptist College, which nobody had ever heard of. He changes uh, on the on the bicentennial anniversary coming up uh, uh, 1976. He changes the name of the school to Liberty University, and he changes the colors from green and gold to red, white, and blue. And suddenly, Liberty University is being marketed as like this this this, this stronghold, this this beacon of a a bygone Christian America. And the resistance, the resistance against the secularizing culture, right. and against and specifically, I might add, Acts. One of the great ironies here is who who's the boogeyman? We know that any effective um, any effective demagogue needs a a good boogeyman. 
It's Jimmy Carter, of all people, right? A, 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 an evangelical Sunday school teacher, somebody who is a part of the Southern Baptist Convention and who is a, a, a you know thoroughgoing Christian in yes. his personal and in his public life. Um, but Falwell singles him out as as uh, as a threat and as someone who embodies the uh, the sort of weakening of Christianity in the culture. And then from there, Falwell Sr. builds out the moral majority. And so he's got this, this, this kind of three-pronged machine between his big Baptist church with like 20,000 members, his Christian university, which is rapidly growing and, and bringing in tons of new students and money, and then the moral majority. And basically, Falwell Sr. uses these three things together in unison and builds out this this army, right? This 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 massive force of resisting, as you just said, it resisting what he sort of portrays to be this secular takeover of the schools and of society, and 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 really, I would just say, perhaps most um, importantly, most dramatically, really setting up this framing this cosmic clash between the you know the good God fearing Christians who inherited this country from the founding fathers who wanted a Christian nation versus those godless leftist uh, Democrats who want to tear down the Judeo-Christian foundations. And, and, and that clash, that apocalyptic rhetoric, David, is still what we're dealing with today. In many ways, there's just a straight line. Well, and this is where uh, the merger of Trump and Falwell, uh, who's now gone, but the merger of that evolution and his politics came. But the Republican Party has recognized for decades that there's profit in this, and mm -hmm. uh, and and so there's been this sort of merger of the uh, of the politically oriented evangelical movement with the Republican Party. But Trump is a guy whose whole political project relies on resentment, outrage, a sense of a, of imminent ap uh, apocalypse, a sense of loss, uh, you know, at the hands of the infidels in the deep in the deep state. So you can see where that would work together, but the interesting thing is I mean you couldn't pick a person more unlike the sort of precepts of Christianity in the way that he's led his life, in the way he conducts himself, and yet winds up, as you say, almost deified himself by this movement. How, and you talk about it in this book, it's, it's, it's such an interesting read, but talk about how evangelicals who are in the throes of this justify Trump's you know, very substantial weaknesses when viewed through the prism of the teachings of the Bible. You know, Axe, you really put your finger on it a minute ago in talking about how Trump traffics in this this fear and and this grievance, and how that made him such a good match for this movement. And it's interesting because on paper, sure, you look at Trump at you know the the thrice married casino owning parades his mistresses through the tabloids, the Playboy, right, all this stuff, right. And and so yes, of course, on paper, he is antithetical to the belief system, the values of these people, and would seem to be a horrible match for them. But I think what's what's so interesting about Trump and the man meeting the moment, as it were, which you know you and I both know in politics, it's all about timing. I think what Trump kind of inherently understood instinctively understood which you know give him credit for this i suppose it's 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 uh it's an insight that he had that you know few politicians few politicians did trump realized that for a lot of these evangelicals by the time you know it's the turn of the century certainly by the time of the obama presidency and you witnessed this up close that that fear that grievance and that sense of loss had reached like defcon 1 levels and, and and there was a there was a real pervasive sense on in, in quarters of the christian right at least uh that really infected the evangelical movement as a whole that we are on our last legs here that we are under siege that time is running out and you know drastic times call for drastic measures 
in that window of thinking enters Trump, who says, listen, you don't need somebody to turn the other cheek. You don't need a Sunday school teacher. You need a brawler. You need someone who's willing to fight fire with fire and who's willing to throw out the the, the rule book and, and go to war for you. It's a little bit like when George W. Bush said that he had to abandon free market principles to save the free market. This was Trump and evangelical leaders who allied with him essentially saying the same thing, that to preserve Christian virtues in this country, they needed to first do away with Christian virtues. And so Trump enters into this, you know— this alliance that on the one hand is almost inexplicable, but on the other hand, kind of makes sense because he's relying on that fear and on that grievance. And he's entering into this kind of transactional relationship with these people saying, look, if you give me your votes, then I will give you everything you ever wanted, right? Politically. And in some sense, he did. And of course, it you know raises the question, but at what cost? And that's what we're dealing with now, is at what cost? And, and we're, we're going to be dealing with that question, I think, for a very long time. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Feeling overwhelmed with the constant flow of headlines and trying to keep up with the latest twist of this election year? Take a deep breath and turn on Crooked Media's What A Day podcast. In just 20 short minutes, What A Day, hosted by me, Juanita Tolliver, and my co-hosts, Trey Bell Anderson, Josie Duffy Rice, and Priyanka Arabindi, breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry. And the best part is, we do it every day. So start your day off right with What A Day, available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And now, back to the show. One of the things that you wrote about and that's so striking to me is that Trump was at first the object of suspicion among a lot of evangelical voters. And one of the concerns that his camp had was, would there be less enthusiasm for him because of that? And they brought they, they got themselves essentially a beard in Mike Pence. They recruited Mike Pence in no small measure because he was going to be Trump's ambassador to the evangelical community because he fun, he's from that community. He's a deep believer. He practices the faith and was widely known as such. And he offered reassurance to evangelicals uh, that helped ease the way for Trump, the other thing was, you know, that Trump was going to appoint these judges that were certifiably going to be more uh, receptive to uh, the concerns of the evangelical community. But now, now Pence is the object of, of scorn among evangelicals, though he is genuinely of and from them. Uh, and you, you know, you talk. It's interesting to hear you describe how and why they, uh, uh, how they talk about him and why he. But it drove him right out of the race. He thought he was going to rally the evangelical base in Iowa, and when he dropped out, uh, Trump had more than half that vote in his pocket, and uh, Pence in the single digits. It's kind of a, I mean, there's a parable of some of sorts here, but about. Of Faustian bargains, but talk a little bit about that whole thing. 
You're, you're absolutely right that it is a parable uh, of, of the Faustian bargain. And, you know, David, look, one of the enduring legacies here of Trump, political and otherwise, and I really mean this, it, I, I think it might sound grandiose, but I, I just think it's true. One of Trump's enduring legacies will be fundamentally reorienting the expectations and the attitudes of the evangelical movement toward their political leaders. And what I mean by that is that Trump conditioned so many of these evangelical voters to expect pugilism, to expect antagonism, to expect belligerence, that Mike Pence, with his genteel William Wilberforce evangelicalism, could no longer pass muster, right? They needed something more. I was I was at this event with Pence uh, about a year ago, uh, near the beginning of his presidential campaign, where he was speaking to a Christian audience, and they were you know polite enough. This was a very sort of dignified uh, uh, setting, academic setting, in fact, at a at a Christian school. And Pence talked about how when he was in talk radio back in the day, that he was known as Rush Limbaugh on decaf. And I had somebody say to me after the speech, they said, you know, we don't need decaf, like. You know, the, have you seen what the left is doing, you know, grooming our children and taking over our schools and kicking Christians out of public life? We, we don't need somebody on decaf. We need all the caffeine we can get. And boy, oh boy, David, like you want to talk about a parable. Like in, in many ways, it, that is the ball of wax here. Like that, that we've seen a transformation among just the rank and file. And this, again, I want to be clear, we're talking about tens of millions of people when we talk about, you know, the white evangelical movement, right? So, like, this is not this is not everyone. I don't think it's even a majority, but I do think that, again, this sort of, this, this intensified, emboldened fringe has been ascendant in ways that we've just never seen before. And much as in our political system, you dismiss this at your own peril. This has been very profitable for the Republican Party, clearly for Donald Trump. But it's also been profitable, and you you spend a bunch of time on this, to the pastors who are willing to accede to it, who are willing to embrace it. And, you know, they measure their they measure their success by seats in the pews. And Trumpian politics has put seats in the pews. Yes, it has. You know, you have to, you always have to question the motivations of people who are uh, a part of institutions um, where there's tremendous financial uh, implications involved, right? And 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 sadly, look, we want to think of the church as an institution that is set apart that's that that's that's separate that should be thought of differently than you know the healthcare system or law enforcement or congress or the media or whatever but like the church is an institution of men at its core and men are motivated by money by power by influence by fame and you're exactly right i mean what we've seen certainly in the last you know 5 6 7 years although it certainly goes much farther back, as we were talking earlier about Falwell Sr. and then the kind of televangelist era. I mean, Falwell Sr. at one point, David, I don't think people realize this. This guy had like over 10 million people on his mailing list. Like this is back in the 80s. This is pretty cutting edge advanced stuff back then. They, these guys have mastered the art of figuring out how to weaponize scripture to raise money and to build out their sort of earthly empire here, their earthly kingdom. And so what you've seen, particularly over the last few years, is that during COVID-19, during the George Floyd, you know, racial unrest summer of 2020, during the re-election campaign of Trump, and then January 6th, what you saw was this mass realignment inside the evangelical world where you had churches that had been together, you know, people go, people part of the same congregation for 20, 30 years who were just suddenly disappearing like overnight and they were defecting to some other church down the road. And those churches, which had been kind of small uh, and, and not really prominent in their local communities are suddenly exploding because the pastor there 
has turned his pulpit into a soapbox and turned his Sunday morning worship into a Fox News set. And it's just a sort of blood and soil Christian nationalist revival thing. And the money has followed. I mean, it, I've been to churches, David, that their congregations uh, grew tenfold or twelvefold or fifteenfold, and the finances are just through the roof. And suddenly, these guys are living a different lifestyle than they were living just three or four years ago. And so, of course, the money is an enormous part of this. Yeah, you know, it's so uh, interesting to me because I spend a lot of time thinking about the impact social media has had on society, on uh, on and in our politics. And as you know, the algorithms of these social media platforms, which are, the, these platforms are neutral in their political view. Certainly the algorithms are neutral. They have one mission, which is to keep people online. And what they've, their great insight is the thing that keeps people online is fear, anger, resentment, outrage. Uh, and in a way, this is the same inspiration that certainly Trump has, and the these pastors who uh, who have embraced this have. But let, let let you you know you also speak I think uh, right admiringly and poignantly uh, about the pastors who resist and, and who have seen their you know their their churches lose lose members, and one of them is your the pastor who su- succeeded your father. Uh, who went through terrible time because he wasn't willing to uh, to to embrace all of this. But you also uh, suggest that others are coming to fill those seats. Do you see a revival of a kind of evangelical movement, even if it's under another name, because the, the word evangelical now is so identified with the Christian nationalism and the right that it's the brand, you know, I hate to call it this, but the brand is is in some ways soiled. But do you think there's another mo- breakaway movement that can succeed? It's I think it's too early to say. I, I and that's not to to cop out because I, I have a lot of thoughts on what you just said. You know, our mutual friend Russell Moore has talked ha, has talked about this as potentially like a 500 year moment for Christianity that we're living through right now, you know, that like, you know, do the math, the last 500 year moment was the reformation, right? Like that 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 that's those are the stakes of what we're living through right now that this fracturing that I'm writing about in evangelicalism and in American Christianity at large is so profound that I think it's going to take time for us to really sift through the wreckage and and there will be uh, without question, I think some new kind of affiliations and, and new movements that that spring up and other old affiliations and movements will kind of uh, fade away. And to your point about the brand being soiled, look, I couldn't agree more. I, I think at this point, if somebody asks me, are you an evangelical? I say, well, you know, like what's what's wrong with just saying I'm a follower of Jesus, right? Well, because here's the problem, David. You know, in no, but first of all, nobody's ever agreed on what the term evangelical really means, anyway. I mean, it, there's there's obviously um, its roots are in the Greek, really meaning good news and gospel. And but but in the American context, what does it mean to be an evangelical? I think at the end of the day, we have to recognize that there's a verb in that word, and the verb is to evangelize. And if we are called as Christians to evangelize, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth and and preach that good news of how God took on flesh, how he how how Jesus was fully God and fully man and served as the mediator between a broken humanity and a perfect God, if we want to share that good news of salvation, there's this barrier to entry now because people hear the word evangelical and they say I don't want anything to do with these people, right? I and and really that sort of new standard that has emerged in a lot of these churches where forget about following Jesus, forget about the doctrines, forget about the creeds. Who'd you vote for in the last election? Did you get a vaccine? Are you woke? We've replaced the real litmus test of of Jesus Christ with these, these false phony litmus tests. And I think that the repercussions of that are going to be felt for for decades to come. I think we've only just begun to see the beginning of that of that fracturing. You uh, point out in the book that the uh, pandemic was kind of another line of demarcation because many churches in states that had COVID regulations were shut down for a while. 
and this created a huge backlash um, that we saw in our politics, but that was very much evident in the church. I want to ask you about another thing, though. You know, right uh, throughout this is a discussion of this sense of impending apocalypse if, you know, the sort of godless infidels are not stopped and that Trump is the instrument of that. And it got me thinking about January 6th and the people who were there and some of the other acts of violence that we've seen around the country. And you can only imagine that if that's what people think the stakes are, that it justifies almost anything. Are you worried about about 2024 and where this is all going? I think you have to be because you're right, David. Once you have assigned these existential stakes to an election, once you begin to view Republican versus Democrat as a proxy for good versus evil, and you think that this is all a spiritual struggle now, and that the forces of good and the forces of God, forces of light are colliding with the forces of darkness and of evil. And I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, read the book. Like I, I go yeah, around the country right. talking with people saying this exact thing. This is in many ways no, the it's whole very crisis. striking. It's very striking in the book. Let's just give you a little bit of an advertisement here. One of the reasons why the book is so good is the reason why your journalism is so good, Tim Alberta, because you go where the, the people are and you, in good faith, engage with people where they are. And there is an authenticity to your reporting that is really, really important. And in this case, concerning. Let me say what I can't, you can't say about yourself, but go ahead. And- <laughs> That, no, you're you're kind to say that, Axe. I appreciate it. I, I I think, you know, one of the big differences, obviously, of when people say, "Well, why not? Why is this happening?" Well, you know, fifteen twenty years ago, when Westboro Baptist would do their protests, everybody could point at them and say, "Well, these people are nuts. These people are lunatics. They're the fringe. You know, they're they're not a part of anything that you know that that resembles the mainstream." Well, here we are today. And some of these people who speak this prophetic language about American Armageddon and good versus evil and Trump being sort of God's ordained almost messiah for America, right? These are people who have millions of followers online. These are people who are intimately connected into the highest echelons of conservative activism and of the Republican Party. And uh, you had better believe that... If Trump is reelected, uh, if he is elected to a, a second non-consecutive term, that is, he will have people in his West Wing who are avowed Christian nationalists. He will have people in his West Wing who who are avowed and unapologetic theocrats who have some pretty uh, unprecedented ideas, at least in the sweep of the American experiment in self-government, about how this country should be run. I mean, it's not a coincidence that just a few weeks ago when he was campaigning, I believe, in New Hampshire, Trump floated this idea of a religious litmus test for migrants coming to this country, saying, you know, we might only let in Christians from now on. I mean, like, and we, and it was a news story for about an hour or an hour and a half, and then we all moved on. But like, this this, this is a guy saying that that if you're a, a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu or, or just, you know, a non-believer, you can't come to America anymore. I mean, this is the sort of thing that the, the framers were just completely, yeah, exactly. completely wigged out about and designed the entire system of government around religious freedom in many ways. And now we have this impending threat that I think a lot of people just either they don't see it or they don't want to see it. A lot has been made because that's what the media does when books are released about one particular thing in the book, which is Trump, what he says privately about Christians and evangelicals, which is a lot different than what he says in public. So I don't want to dwell on it because it's been dwelled on too much, and it kind of reduces the importance of everything else that you write about to kind of focus on that one thing. But it it does kind of point up the kind of... uh, remarkable nature of his position within the evangelical movement, given the fact that he he doesn't feel personal attachment. This is all transactional for him. I'm glad you made that point because, um, 
you know, the 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 sordid nature of Trump's specific comments about these people, notwithstanding, and I'm not going to repeat them here, but you put your finger on it there, Axe, which is that, you know, for many of these folks, what began as a transactional relationship has morphed into something else entirely, that there is a cult-like devotion to Donald Trump, a belief that Donald Trump in some ways is um, is their deliverer. The, the, you know, the, 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 the man who can stand athwart the forces of evil and, and, and save this country and preserve its Judeo-Christian heritage and all of that, right? But to Trump himself, it is still absolutely nakedly transactional. I mean, listen, I, I just can, can report with 1000% certainty and, and authenticity that Donald Trump laughs at a lot of these people behind their back. I mean, he doesn't, he, he just doesn't, he doesn't treat them the way that I think they believe he treats them here. He doesn't regard them the way that they hope that he regards them. I, I think, um, Trump is to his core. And you can talk to people who have known him for 30, 40 years, going back to his business dealings. He's a con man and a con man can pick out a mark from a mile away. And Trump saw in some of these people, you know, and, and I'll name names here, thinking about Jerry Falwell Jr., thinking about Franklin Graham, thinking about some of the evangelical leaders that he formed these alliances with. He saw easy marks and he got them to go along with just his latest grift. And it's proven to be fabulously successful for him. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. I want to switch because if this were your only brilliant work, I would uh, we would do the full hour on this. But we're in the middle of a campaign. And, it, and the fact that I was talking to you caused me to go back and read this piece that you wrote about Nikki Haley at the end of uh, – it was at the beginning of 2022, right? Is that – or was it 2021? No, it was the beginning of 2021. 2021, yeah. 2021. But it's an extraordinary piece in the context of today uh, because there are so many parallels between her political, her other political campaigns and her political history and where we are now. I mean, she, she ran every campaign she ever ran uh, in the first instance, not real ex, were come from behind she was sort of lightly counted at first. Uh, and But talk to me about the things that you see now that were evident when you were doing your reporting then. Because I think this is the most comprehensive piece anybody's written about Nikki Haley, who actually hasn't gotten that much attention, but has now become, uh, you know, the great hope for the Republican establishment trying to stop Donald Trump. Yeah. I guess the first thing I would say is that Nikki Haley is a force to be reckoned with. She is extremely bright. She has just a, a kind of innate political ability. You know, you just see from time no, to time. She's a natural. People, she's a natural. She's a, natural. Yeah, she's, she's, yeah. she's a political athlete, right? As we might yes. say, you just, you yes. know, you see it. I think what has been her great strength has also been her great weakness, which is that Nikki Haley is incredibly malleable, incredibly adaptable. She is someone who, in almost every role or every race she's ever run in, has been a slightly different version of herself. She, she's she's uh, she's got this ability to kind of shape shift and morph and. Again, I, I think in part that has been a, a big part of her success, but it's also. I think a challenge for 
someone who in this moment, like, let's be clear, you know, Nikki Haley got in all kinds of trouble when she says to me a couple of years ago, right after January 6th, she comes out and just full frontal just blitz blitzes Donald Trump and says, you know, that he misled us, that we followed him, we made a mistake by following him, and we can never do it again. She, I mean, she tees off on Donald Trump. And we should point out, Tim, because this is important context, this is consonant with what she was saying early in 2016. Yes. Uh, and yes. you get the sense that this is what she really thinks. This is her. This is her. That's exactly... No, you're, you're right to point the context out, because... I think the whole point of the piece that I wrote a couple of years ago was like, will the real Nikki Haley please stand up? You know, who you have to ultimately decide who you want to be if you're going to run for president. And and whether you allow the true version of yourself to emerge or whether you settle on a different version, fine, but just, you know, settle on one. And I think for people who know Nikki really well, they are quite convinced, as am I, having spent a lot of time around her, that the true version of herself is the person who was uh, just completely disgusted with Donald Trump from the beginning, the person who took down the Confederate flag uh, on the state house grounds in South Carolina after that heinous white supremacist uh, shooting when she was governor, which took enormous, I mean, acts, people like forget that that took enormous political courage on her part to do that. But then you fast forward you know, not only did she join the Trump administration and say all the right things and play nice with him, but she gives this speech at the convention in 2020 where she won't even say Confederate flag. She says divisive symbol, right? Like, it, so it's all in code now. Like she can't afford, she thinks, to really be that version of herself, to, to yeah. really, you know, to play up the fact that as a little brown girl raised in Bamberg, South Carolina, she, and her father wore a turban, she and her family dealt with a lot of horrible stuff. And and that shaped her identity in such a powerful, profound way. But there's this part of her that holds back, and and you'll see glimpses of it, but then she pulls back again. And so, you know, if she gets this opportunity to go heads up against Donald Trump at some point, I don't know if she will. I don't know if DeSantis will stick around long enough, but like, will she actually let it rip and, and, and let the chips fall where they may, or is she going to continue to try and tell people what they want to hear? It's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a very interesting and almost in some ways sort of tragic case study of kind of what the party has become in the Trump era, because you have a lot of people like Nikki Haley, who in private with the truth serum in their veins will t give you chapter and verse on what they think about all of this. But for political reasons, they sort of hold back otherwise. Yeah. I mean, one of the questions is she's 51 years old. She's, she's in the prime of her political career. She could be a candidate for president in for for well by today's standards for decades uh after yeah, yeah. uh a after this so you know she may not want to burn the her bridges i saw a piece last week and the headline was you know haley labors to appeal to all factions of the republican party and that's a game of twister that's hard to win uh yeah you know it's hard to stay on your feet it's also hard to win a presidential race if people um you know, if people don't think that you are uh, being authentic. Now she's, but she is, she is an, as you point out, a, a great performer and can, and she presents her, she presents whatever she wants to present in a convincing fashion. And we'll see if she can beat that, um, you know, and, and sort of, continue to slice the salami very thin here. Uh, I don't know. But one, one thing that uh, uh, your piece made clear is that she's not someone who takes prisoners. She's, she's not someone who easily forgets slights. And she's not someone who backs down if she thinks someone is, um, has betrayed her or is in the way. Um, she's not looking for a way to navigate around. Uh, and, you know, I thought of this when I was reading your piece. I thought about the Republican debate a couple of debates ago. I think it was the second debate when Tim Scott still looked like he had some prospects, uh, however vague. And, and uh, I think Kristen Welker from NBC asked a provocative question of 
Scott, which is, and then of Haley, which is, well, Governor Haley appointed you to the Senate. Why would you be a better president than she? And he gave a very senatorial, rambling, kind of jargon-filled answer. And then they went to her, and she just ripped the hide off of them. <laughs> I mean, she just, and it w- would have been so easy, it seems to me, to have said, you know what? Tim, I appointed you to the Senate. I'm proud that I did. You've been a fine senator, but we're running for president of the United States, and it's a different job. And I can tell you, having been the chief executive of a state, our state, that uh, you don't get to make long, uh, you know, sort of winded and, you know, uh, evasive speech or whatever. You know what I mean? She could have, there, there, were, there was a graceful way yes. to make the point, and instead she dumped Apo on him. That seems very consistent with the portrait of her that you drew from your conversations and research. She is a knife fighter, Axe. I mean, and and we should note, by the way, that the context of this is South Carolina politics is down and dirty, right? I mean, you know, unlike almost any other place in the country. I mean, this is the famous, you know, John McCain had a black child out of wedlock, the, you know, the Bush campaign shenanigans. Um, you know, Nikki Haley has had some serious mudsling in her direction in her races over the years, some really ugly racial stuff about her and her family. South Carolina is a dog eat dog Republican political universe down there. And so she emerged from that. And I think she probably had to be a knife fighter in order to to accomplish what she accomplished. Um, the problem, which is what many of her contemporaries will tell you, including people who were with her for years and considered themselves almost like family to her and now are on the outside because of some slight real or perceived, you know, uh, they will just say to you, like, this this woman remembers everything. She internalizes everything. She does not tolerate criticism. She doesn't take, you know, she she just that that if like you're either on the inside or you're dead to her. And they're part of part of I think her problem politically is she does not have any meaningful supporting cast around her in terms of like, you know, in prominent influential conservatives, Republicans who can vouch for her and put their arm around her and say, hey, Nikki's great. Let's go to war with her. I mean, it's just she's she's left a lot of bodies, you know, strewn along the road behind her. And I don't know, ultimately, Axe, that that would matter in running against Trump. I, I mean, I just, you know, and it does highlight a certain oddity, which is this question of, well, hold on, if she's such a knife fighter, then why doesn't she just go for Trump's throat? Right. And that's the, frankly, that's a question I would love the answer to because you know that she's got it in her and you know what she really thinks about Trump. I mean, I'm just, I can tell you both from the on the record stuff published in that piece and then from a lot of time spent off the record with her. Like, I know what Nikki Haley thinks about Donald Trump and I know what she says about him uh, and what she thinks about him and what she'd, you know, like to come say out loud about him. I think she just made the calculation that she can't. She can't win the race that way. Um, by the way, and if this sounds familiar, it's the same exact calculation that everybody made in 2016. Right. You know, Ted Ted Cruz and the rest. Oh, we can't criticize this guy because, you know, our voters like him too much. Well, okay. I mean, that's fine. But eventually, something's got to give here. And so she's in this very weird spot in the race where she might get up to 15, 20%, 25%. But- uh, you know, ultimately, that's not enough to win. She's benefited from the fact that she is breaking late here, which is what you want to do in a presidential race. Uh, DeSantis broke early and became an early target and got early attention before he really got his. Well, I'm not sure he's you know just watching last night with his debate, uh, so-called debate with uh, Gavin Newsom. I'm not sure he's ever, was ever going to be great, uh, but. Uh, he got a lot of attention, including tens of millions of negative ads from Trump. She's really not gotten a whole lot of scrutiny uh, in this race. Uh, that will come if she, if it becomes a Trump-Haley race. Uh, Trump will not tolerate her if he thinks that she is a, represents a threat to him. How will she hold up to that? 
It's a good question. But you're right, though, that Trump won't tolerate it. And we've really only seen the kind of kid glove stuff so far. It's been just child's play so far. But yeah, if, if he perceives her at some point as being a real threat, then then he'll unload and his people will unload. And, you know, I wrote about this a little bit in that piece. Like, you better believe that, you know, the pictures of her in yeah, visiting a, a shrine or a temple in India with all the garb on and with her bindi on her forehead and her dad with the turban. Like, you better believe that that stuff's going to come out, like it, that it's going to become fair game for Trump has in his employ some of just the 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 nastiest, most no holds bar people that we've seen in politics since Nixon. I mean, they're they're and they're just itching to go after her. So, you know, there's going to be almost this relationship between her continuing to climb in the polls and how ugly this escalates, uh, you know, just how bad this gets. I think the real question is, at some point, does DeSantis decide that he wants to preserve his future prospects and run again down the road? Because, you know, a lot of people who like Trump will tell pollsters that DeSantis is their second choice. Right. If DeSantis realizes that he's going to get swamped in Iowa and in New Hampshire and in South Carolina and wind up just looking like a loser, then maybe he gets out and maybe she gets her one-on-one crack against him. And that could be fast. Although, as you point out, a lot of those DeSantis votes may head over. The, the idea that everybody who's not voting for Trump now won't vote for right. Trump is kind of a mis, uh, a misunderstanding. Last thing on this, you wrote another great book called American Carnage that traced uh, the changes in the Republican Party. The Koch brothers were a, a an element of that story uh, and the network that they built to try and influence elections at the, at the local, state, and ultimately national level. Charles Koch last week uh, endorsed Haley and is swinging what's left of his network and wealth, uh, and he's got plenty of wealth, but what's left of his network, which has been kind of dormant in some ways for a while or semi-dormant behind Haley. How, how big a deal is that? There's this old sports expression, right? Uh, it's too little, too late. And that was my first thought when I saw the Coke News acts. You know, there, I, I in my last book, American Carnage, I detail this really vivid scene back in 2016 when uh, Mark Short, who is Mike Pence's right-hand man mm-hmm. and who, of course, was chief of staff to, yes. to Vice President Mike Pence, when Mark Short led this delegation that went out and met with the Koch brothers in, in Kansas, and uh, it was a couple of weeks before Super Tuesday, and they had all this polling to suggest that Trump coming out of New Hampshire was going to have a head of steam. And if they wanted to stop him, that now was the time. And they needed $10 million to blitz the airwaves on Super Tuesday and to stop Trump from winning the nomination. And uh, as I recount in that scene, Mark Short gives this presentation and the Koch brothers, they look around at all their advisors in the room and everybody shakes their head no. And they say, yeah, sorry, can't do it, you know? And so here we are now, uh, if you want to do the historic counterfactual, how different of a place might we be in had some of these people like the Koch brothers realized the threat for what it was back in 2016 and had done something about it then. Here we are now where Trump has, fit between, depending on the poll, you know, between 50 and 65% of the vote and who his, his approval with Republican base voters is through the roof. And, and his, uh, there's, his favorability hasn't budged. In fact, it's only gone up after all these indictments. So, despite four indictments, yeah, yeah. despite four, so, like you know, sure, the you know the the Coke network, which is not nearly the behemoth today that it was uh, five six years ago, I might add, but the Coke network can swing into action and he can write some checks. But is it going to move the needle? I, I mean, I doubt it. I, I really do. It just feels like the opportunity here was missed. Uh, but not only. In, you know, with with Coke, but with a lot of these folks. Yeah. To the degree that Haley moves, she's going to get more attention from Trump. And it's not just going to be the things that you mentioned, but it's going to be on Ukraine and it's going to be on uh, abortion. And it's going to be a lot on, I suspect, uh, this thing that you spoke about, which is things she's said at one instance that are not what she's saying now, including that she wasn't going to run against Trump uh, two years ago, she said, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't run if he were running. Now, you know, some of the, I, I'm sure she can handle 
all of these, but it's going to be interesting. These campaigns, Tim, as you know, because you've covered them and I've lived them for a really long time, they are the most excruciating oral exam on the planet. And ultimately, you know, I said a long time ago that uh, they are MRIs for the soul and whoever you are, people will know if you get to that final kind of level where you get full scrutiny. So it's going to be very, very interesting. And um, uh, we'll see how it how it all turns out. But I'm always happy to catch up with you, man. And I, I can't wait to uh, to be in the same place with you to continue the conversation. Uh, but the kingdom, the power and the glory, American evangelicals in an age of extremism, it's well worth your time. Tim Alberta of The Atlantic, it's great to be with you as always. Uh, likewise, and um, I feel like uh, th- this is just another one of our casual phone calls when we pick up and, and shoot the breeze <laughs> about all this stuff. So anytime you want to do it with the microphones in front of us, it's that much better. And uh, I appreciate all the kind words and we'll talk soon. All right, brother. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.